Hello authors, I'm Joanne Morell, children's and young adult fiction writer and author of short non-fiction for authors. Thanks for joining me for the Hybrid Author Podcast, sharing interviews from industry professionals to help you forge a career as a hybrid author, both independently and traditionally publishing your books. You can get the show notes for each episode and sign up for your free author pass over at the Hybrid Author website to discover your writing process, get tips on how to publish productively, and get comfortable promoting your books at www.hybridauthor.com.au. Let's crack on with the episode. When he's not shooting marshmallows out of a homemade cannon or hanging out with the local magpie population, Steve's using his 40 years of experience working with children in social and emotional well-being to cultivate and underpin his writing. He blends the elements of heart, hope, humor and help to create children's books that touch and tickle hearts. Wow. Welcome to the Hybrid Author Podcast, Steve. Thank you, Joe. <laughs> Thanks for the introduction. So how is it you came to join the exciting world of writing and publishing? Uh, that is a really top-notch question. Uh, <laughs> I failed English at school, so um, the fact that I'm here now writing books is a bit of a surprise to me. I've dabbled a lot in writing over the years, done a little bit of self-publishing, you know, even up to 20 or 30 years ago, so I've always been a little bit interested in that. About six years ago, I decided to take it up quite seriously. My father passed away and left some money for the grandchildren for their education, and there was some left over. So his children, including myself, got a little bit of money, and I thought I will put that towards my education because I'd never gone formally to university. So I decided to do a diploma of children's writing and publishing, and uh, I signed up to Australian College, and it was an 18-month online course, and that's when I decided to take up writing quite seriously. And since then, I joined Squibby. For those who don't know, that's the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators. Then the rest is history. So I've been a member of Squibby for five or six years now. Fantastic. That's that's wonderful. So in your bio, it touches on that you've had 40 years experience working with children and social and emotional well-being. How's that helped shape your children's author career? I think it's shaped it quite amazingly. I'd worked out that I'd spent about 15,000 hours of my life listening to children tell me what's going on in their life. And they're all stories. That's their story. And those stories filled me like a sponge. And I suppose once a sponge gets overfilled, it starts leaking. I had to leak out their stories, not their stories as particular individual stories, but stories that had elements of what was happening in kids' lives coming out in the stories. But I wanted to do that in a way that totally respected uh, their privacy, but also respected their journey, gave a sense of hope to anyone else who may be experiencing that kind of thing. So I've listened to kids talk about anything that goes on in their lives. You you imagine it. I've heard it, you know, mm. from their pet chook dying to grandma being sick to mum and dad fighting to dad drunk driving to uh, the really horrific stuff, uh, which includes some of the abuse stuff. And so those stories just sit there ready to be told in in a really respectful way. Yeah, and obviously to be put out to maybe help other children who are going through those same experiences, That's yeah, that's really good. So what are some of the roles you've had that you've... 
acquired these stories that you've been able to speak to children? Uh, I worked with the Anglican Church for many years as the children and youth ministry coordinator. I've also been a chaplain in schools. Oh, wonderful. And I've also been the director of a charitable organisation called Nurture Works, uh, which was a social and emotional well-being organisation that did a lot of programs and things in schools. So I've dabbled in social and emotional well-being. Well, probably not dabbled. I've probably dived in the deep end and been involved in positive schools and social and emotional well-being for, for most of those 40 years. Probably from the very early days, one of the things I learned to do was to listen to what children were saying and to actually provide some sense of hope to the things that they were talking about. Those experiences led me on to the importance of social and emotional well-being. Fantastic, yeah. So you mentioned uh, that you currently self-publish, independently publish, and you have some traditional published books. How many of your books have you current? How many books have you currently got? Sorry, and how many of your titles do you put out yourself and get the help from other publishers? Wow, <laughs> <laughs> too many to um, count. <laughs> look, quite a long, long time ago, I wrote I wrote a couple of books when I was involved in the church, and we self-published those. But, uh, and, and that was that was an interesting experience. The organisation I worked with in 2007, we published a series of six books in the Feel Safe, Feel Right series, which were all books that touched on social issues for kids. Totally self-published those. And uh, that experience, I thought I knew what I was doing, and I did. I wish I know now or then what I know now because then it would be a whole lot different. But that was a good experience. We were lucky because we received a, a generous donation from someone who donated some money for us to buy a bus, but we had some left over, so we used that money to publish these books. And they've been quite successful in their own right. They haven't really got into many bookstores, but through our own programs, those books have been quite well received. And a lot of schools have them in their libraries. When I first got published by a traditional publisher, I was picked up kind of serendipitously because I went to a pitch session and I thought I was going to pitch my picture book, but I signed up for a romance novel pitch, <laughs> which threw me a little bit. and. So at the last minute, I let the organisers know that I'd made a mistake and they said, it doesn't matter because the publisher's thinking of publishing middle grade novels anyway. So I went along and the, within a couple of weeks, the publisher contacted me and said, we'd like to publish your first novel. So that was pretty serendipitous. And uh, that was my first encounter with traditional publishing. They were a small publisher and uh, it was a learning experience for me. I realised I knew more about the publishing industry than I thought I did uh, because of previous self-publishing. So that helped me on that journey to know to know what to expect. Not long after that, I received my first offer from a slightly bigger publisher, and that was uh, my book Lingley's Lantern, which was my first picture book. And that was going to be a hardback, professionally produced book with Midnight Sun Publishing. And um, that's when I felt that I'd really, really got somewhere with being published by big publishers. Still yet to uh, find how to get into the really big publishers, the, the big four or the big five or whatever you call them, and I'm still plugging away at that. I've published, self-published some books for adults about children, a book about bully-proofing and a book about uh, growing hope in children as well, and both of those were self-published, one through Ex Libris, which is a big multinational company, 
And that was a good experience because their publishing line, their publishing experience was straight down the line. They follow the letter of the law. You put up the cost. They do all the bits and pieces. Once your book's out there, they don't give a hoot about you anymore, though. But they do hound you for the next umpteen years <laughs> to try and market your book for you. And that's where you can waste a lot of money on marketing. You know, for those who want to go down that kind of line with the big, big online publishers, just be careful that they're going to hound you and keep on, they'll find you. They'll, mm-hmm. Even if you ask them not to, they will keep finding you. Yeah, and yeah. I keep so, on getting a call. Where are we? <laughs> so they offer professional publishing services to help uh, creator, obviously. Yeah, they do. They, yeah, all, it's all there. Um, a lot of it is left up to you. You get the final call on things. Their editing is average. You need to really get a good editor yourself because they're editing. They don't do a lot of structural editing, so they'll only just do the um, full stops and commas and question marks kind of editing, you know, and a bit of grammar. But they, yeah, structural editing, they won't touch that because there's too much involved and that's mm. going to cost them too much. Yeah, I, I thought the process was an okay kind of process, very similar to traditional publishing process, uh, except for you pay for it. You, know, you pay for what you get. Yeah. And then you end up with a whole pile of books. If you want more, they cost you more, and then you'll end up with shelves of them. And then you think, damn, now I've, now I've got a market. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever consider the Ingram Spark KDP Select route where uh, you've got to put the files up yourself? Did you look into all these other aspects? Uh, they didn't really exist when I first did the Zebras uh, thing. Yep. Uh, while I didn't know about them at that time, had I known about them, maybe I might have considered them. I won't consider them now because I want to be traditionally published, so yep. that's what I want to spend my time uh, getting into. Having said that, though, I have my next middle grade novel is coming out later this year, and that's hybrid published. So it's kind of halfway. Uh, when I say halfway, uh, you still pay pay for the book to be published. I entered a competition and won 50% off uh, the cost. So it was a bit of a marketing ploy. And there was the first place got a full traditional contract and runner-up got 50% off. And I was runner-up. But I think there were more than one runner-up. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, but I did look into it and I did my research and I spoke to the manager or the, the publisher and it was a pretty good deal. I, it was more than, le- sorry, less than half the cost that would have cost me to go down the self-publishing route. They seem to be reputable. And they also have distribution as well through the indie indie yeah. bookstores and through the indie industry. Who, who was that by? Uh, Shoreline Publishing Group. Uh, they've only been around for probably two years now, and they've only just this year started up a children's line, which is Playtime Books, and uh, they look pretty good. I'm, mm. I'm really excited and impressed by them. But, you know, when you go down something like a hybrid publishing, you know – that there may be some risks involved because you're not entirely sure, but there are also risks involved with traditional publishers as well. That's right. Because I've heard some horror stories from people who've gone down traditional publishing lines as well. Yeah, that's it. So it's just take a gamble, hold your breath. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, the worst thing is you've spent a whole pile of money, but at the end of it you get a you get a nice book. Yeah. Uh, and that's my hope is that the book will be a good quality book and get it out there. Yep. And then I've got to do quite a bit of marketing myself. But as I said, they do have a distributor and yep. the distributor will distribute to all your normal bookshops. So, And there is a chance that I could get ASO as well, which is the Australian Standing Orders. Uh, I was really lucky with Maximus, which was my first middle grade novel because I got Standing Orders through Le Mans. 
and that got into over 600 libraries. And uh, with Lingley's Lantern, uh, my standing order was with Scholastic, and that was 1,300 copies of that book that went out to libraries and schools, etc. You don't get a lot of royalties from those because they get massive discounts. The benefit comes in ELR and PLR later on because uh, in a year or two's time, you start getting your payment once you mm. sign up for ELR and PLR. Can you tell our listeners what that stands for, for, for those of us who are maybe not familiar? ELR stands for Educational Lending Rights and PLR stands for Public Lending Rights. And I believe ELR is all the school libraries or university libraries, and PLR is all your public libraries. So every time you've got a copy in a library somewhere, it's kind of like a royalty. I suppose if I was a songwriter, every time my song got played on the radio, I would get a little bit of money from it. It's a bit like this. Every time my book's in the library somewhere, uh, I get a little bit of money from it. And and I think for me uh, it might actually be worth more in the long run than royalties are because royalties suck, really. Royalties aren't very big at all for authors unless you're a big-time author and can demand a high percentage. But uh, ELI and PLR do help out. So so those two lending rights, do you have to be registered for that somewhere or does that come through you are registered through the traditional publishing to receive those royalties or...? I wish it was that simple, but you do you do have to register. It's go it's through a federal government. Uh, I can't remember the name of the website, but if you look up ELR, PLR, uh, registration, then you'll, it'll take you there and you just register your book, put your ISBN and um, other information in and if you go, apparently you only have to register the book once and it stays registered for the life of the book. Is that worldwide or is that just based in Australia? That's Australia. We can thank the Gough Whitlam government, I believe, for that initiative. <laughs> um, so what are your tips who would like to put out their own works of writing for, for your uh, independently published experience? Do you have any tips for authors you would like to share? Any tips for authors? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> hundreds. Uh, hundreds of tips, but I'm trying, still trying to learn myself. Yeah. Maybe, yeah, mainly just for the, the indie publishing route. If they want to do their works themselves, like you said before, you did your research. So is that maybe one of the tips you would share? Make sure you look into the companies that uh, authors are maybe looking at self-publishing their work through? I would say so. You just need to do your homework and read what's out there. There are plenty of uh, Facebook groups uh, for indie authors. If you join one of those groups, you can listen to other people's stories and you get a whole variety of interesting stories for what's happened to people, uh, but also find colleagues who are doing it as well and, and sit down with them and talk with them about how you've gone about doing it. And if possible, even talk to one of the staff, you know, the publisher or the editor in one of those companies and drill them with as many questions as you can. Uh, I did that and I, I got some satisfying answers. I think I had a 30-minute phone call and I had a list of questions as long as my arm. And every question was answered very well. So I thought, yep, I'm, I'm happy with this. I'm going ahead with this one. What the old saying is, buyer beware. Um, you really got to beware. There are also some podcasts, etc., out there that talk a lot about independent publishing and, and about being self-published and all those kind of things. Just keep on adding to the information. If you want to go down the uh, traditional publishing line, then the important thing is just to keep on sending uh, submissions. And um, you, you're going to get rejections unless you somehow magically just land it right in the first place. 
I often think it's like um, buying a lotto ticket. Mm-hmm. And every time I send a, a book off to a publisher, I think, man, there's another lotto ticket. And, you know, you get a whole pile of different kind of rejections. I think probably the biggest tip to any writer is because you get rejected, it doesn't mean you suck at writing. Uh, sometimes I like to think they just suck at selecting. Uh, <laughs> but I shouldn't really say that about publishers. But, uh, they just they just don't know how good my stuff is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so how often do you submit to publishers? Do I'll you have say, a few works out at, at one time? Oh, absolutely. I have over 40 picture books that I've written that are complete. And um, when I say complete, every every second month I'll revisit every book. Just sometimes I change them. Sometimes I think I can't do anything more to this book. And I would send... I'll probably put it this way. Over the last four years, I've sent out over 40 books to over 40, probably over 80 different publishers. And I reckon that I've sent out over four or 500 submissions. Wow. And in that time, I've received two to a publishing office. Yeah. I've had some nibbles. I've had some interest. I've spent a lot of money on pitch sessions and critique sessions with publishers. It's not easy. It's hard work. So you need to be a self-starter. You need to keep on at it as despondent as you can be when you receive rejections. You need to pick yourself up and just say, right, okay, that book wasn't suitable for that publisher. And uh, and I think the important thing is to realise that you are a good writer and listen to your critique group who are, who are reminding you that you're a good writer. If they're not, your critique group are not <laughs> telling you you're a good writer, then... Um, then maybe you need to do a bit of work. (laughs) (laughs) Or dump the critique group. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, you just get some nice family friends who can be nice about your book. But to be honest, you need people to critique. That's the whole idea. (laughs) That's it. No, that's great. Great advice there. So your traditional publishing experience, how have you, you've obviously touched on it as well, but with, with Lingley's Lantern, what what was the process that you went through with Midnight Sun? Obviously, you submitted and they sent. Did they just let you know right off they were interested and then drew up a contract? How did how did that unfold? That's a great question. I like that question um, because it was a great journey. In June of the, that year, I sent out. I had twenty books that I sent off to probably forty different publishers. So each publisher received at least one submission. Uh, 99% of them were by via email or online forms. A couple of them were traditionally uh, snail mail, so I had to shove it in an envelope. And Midnight Sun was one of them. And it wasn't until about six months later, a week before Christmas, I was driving through Punchbowl in Sydney with my caravan, and uh, I received a phone call from Anna uh, Solding from Midnight Sun saying we'd like to publish your book. And while I just about pulled off the road accidentally, and I, I said, oh, can I call you back in a few minutes? I had to go and park the car and, and steady myself. And it, it was a nice, it was such a wonderful feeling to actually receive that phone call and say I'd like to publish your book. It took about two years, probably more than two years from that moment before it finally came out. And that was a good journey. I, I really, really enjoyed that journey. As frustrating as the time lapse was, everything else about the journey was really good. I was fortunate enough to be able to choose my own illustrator because the illustrator they had in mind wasn't available. So I I chose an illustrator I'd met at my first Scooby conference, which was Benjamin Johnson, and he did an absolute 
a superb job of the illustration of the book. Yeah, he did. And it was nice to see to see that process as well. So, yeah, did that answer your question well? Yeah, yeah, no, it did. What about the editing process with Midnight Sun? Was there a lot of back and forth with the editing for that book? Not really, because a picture book that gets accepted by a publisher shouldn't need very much editing. From what I remember, there were just a couple of little grammary kind of things or better ways to say things. And also once the illustrations came in, then some of the wording changed a little because the illustration picked up some of the stuff that the words were saying uh, or the text was saying. So, uh, and that's that's quite given. So there wasn't really a lot involved. Probably went back two or three times. Yeah, there was no big deal. Not like a novel. You know? yeah. <laughs> I remember with Maximus, I spent 200 hours editing Maximus once it came back from the editor. So that blew me away. My next novel, the editor sent it back and it was about, 100 times less than that. So I was only about two hours of editing. And I said to the editor, did you do a thorough job of this? And the editor said, structurally, I didn't need to change anything. You did nailed it. So I'd come a long way from my first novel to my second novel. And what I learned in the editing process in the first novel, I applied in my second novel. And I think I learned more in that process than I did in the diploma course on writing writing for kids. Yeah. <laughs> that makes sense? Because that's yeah. period. You know, when, when it comes out into practice, that's when you think, now the rubber hits the road. Well, next book, then, you can expect none. Will that be correct? <laughs> no editing. Uh, <laughs> dream on, dream on. <laughs> um, I, I've known you to be, you're an absolute ideas machine, uh, which shows by the sheer variety of the books you produce. How, have, how do you come up with the ideas for your books? I, I love this question because... The answer is really weird. <laughs> I would expect nothing less I, from you. <laughs> uh, you know, I used to make a shopping list when I went shopping, uh, but nowadays I just go shopping and I look at all the shelves and I go, yeah, that looks pretty good. I need that. Sometimes I get home and I think, damn, I forgot the main thing that I needed. But uh, ideas are like shopping for me. I'm constantly on the look for things that I can see. So I'm watching stuff all the time that's going on. Uh, I'll observe the birds, the magpies in my neighbourhood. Got a uh, a book about magpies brewing, but I still haven't got the storyline for it. I've got lots of ideas because I've watched the behaviour of magpies and, man, they do some funny things. Often I'll wake up in the middle of the night. I don't know if you do as well or many of the listeners do this. You wake up in the middle of the night and there's this damn random idea that's in your head and you, you don't know where it come from. And I used to go back to sleep. And in the morning, I wouldn't remember what it was. So now I have a habit of ha having my mobile phone right next to me and I can open up notes very quickly. So if I wake up in the middle of the night and have this random idea, I'll just write it down and, uh, and then try and get back to sleep, which is problematic. <laughs> and my latest picture book, which came out last week called Where Are You Going, is about an echidna who has a bag of marshmallows and he heads off in his rickety old bus. <laughs> Now, that, the idea for that book came because one night I woke up and all I could picture in my head was an echidna with marshmallows on every one of his spines. And I, that was the picture I had in my head. And I went, what, what is that about? So I, I wrote it down and then I just left it there for a while. It just sat in my notes. And I, every note I put in my iPhone, I just put picture book idea or book idea or something like that. 
so that when I think, right, I need to start working on some ideas, I will just do a search to see what ideas I had. Now, every January, I do a thing called Story Storm. You may or may not have heard of Story Storm. It comes from, I think, Tara Laser out of the US. The idea is that you come up with 30 ideas in 30 days in January to work on. Now, I've already got the ideas, so I don't want to start working on new ideas. I just always make a list of the 30 ideas that I've collected throughout the year. Uh, well, there's more than 30, but I choose 30 of them. And I develop those ideas during those 30 days. And some of the ideas have no story. Turning the idea into a story is probably the most challenging part of the lot because the idea itself is never a story. The idea may lead to a story, but you've got to find the story in that idea. So the echidna with the bag of marshmallows and sticking mallows on his spines, great image, great concept. But what's the story? How did it come to be? How, how did that happen? So when I get an idea, one of the things that I say is, what if, what if this, what if that, what if the echidna was going somewhere with those marshmallows and collecting people on the way or collecting other creatures on the way? What if, what if some of the creatures did some crazy things? And what if I rhymed some bits and alliterated some bits? And what, and I just kept on doing that. And I do that with a lot of ideas. And sometimes two ideas join together to be the one story. And sometimes one idea splits into two to become two stories. And so that, that's the kind of stuff I just play around constantly with ideas. I also belong to a writer's group here in Bridgetown, and we meet every fortnight. And some of the ideas come out of that because of the writing prompts and challenges we get in there that often are quite random. And I come away from there with ideas because we're kind of forced to write stuff that we not normally write. And that's what I like about that as well. It's, it's quite challenging. So yeah, that's, I think that's my long answer to your short question yeah. about ideas. No, that was fantastic. Thank you for sharing that in such detail. It's great. So would you say your ideas, and that almost sounds like a bit of a process, is that the kind of gateway into your writing process? Would you say you have a writing process? Is there any rituals you perform before sitting down and conducting the act of writing? <laughs> Uh, that's a question I hate. <laughs> the old Why is it, is it weird again? <laughs> uh, no, no, because you, know, you, you listen to different professional writers who have these amazing routines and processes and they get up in the morning and they have to walk a kilometre or five kilometres before they write and then they go to the gym and then they have three coffees before they get started or something like that. Or there's some routine or they do five minutes of writing exercises. And all those things are fine, but it's really about yourself and what's creative for yourself. I sometimes find that I'm a last-minute writer and or a put it off, put it off, put it off, and then all of a sudden I get in the zone. When I used to kind of write thinking, okay, I'm going to try and make a, a nine-to-five um, during the week to do writing. So Monday to Friday, nine to five, that's when I do all my writing and writing business and everything like that so that I can live some kind of normal life. That's unrealistic because sometimes five o'clock on a Friday afternoon is when I just feel the most creative. And so I'll be sitting there at my computer for the next three or four hours just writing stuff on a Friday night. And, uh, and that's it. Just, you know, there are people who talk about planners and pantsers. I'm somewhere between planners, pencils, and uh, ponderers, and what's the other word I'm looking for? I can't think of it, but you probably know what 
what I'm talking about. Um, Procrastination. You know, we're, we're, that's the word, procrastinating. <laughs> yes, I know that one. <laughs> you know, little procrastinating thinking about what it was. So I, I do a lot of that, but sometimes I become a little bit despondent because I've got so many books that I'm trying to get out there that I'll spend a lot of time on rewriting the pictures and submissions for those books. And when I'm doing that, I don't have the creative uh, writing part of me going in terms of writing books themselves. So I just go with the flow whenever it's there. Would you say you 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 write every day or not really? Do you I do? You ask that one. <laughs> you do something involved with writing every day, not so much. I the do act. something involved every day. I do something involved with writing. Uh, I try to write a little bit, or edit a little bit, or dabble a little bit, or do something every day just to keep me interested or just to keep keep it going but but it's different as well because picture books are, are way different than writing a novel when when you're writing a novel i think you really need to have that discipline you need to get set down to it and i know that the three novels that i've now written each of those i did have a discipline well my second novel which is coming out in november the, most of that was written on a cruise ship and uh I wrote that mostly I was on a cruise from Sydney to Seattle, which was 24 days at sea. Wow. And there were two days of six days at sea. And a cruise ship is just such a wonderful environment for writing. And I did a lot of that. I got into a good routine where I spent a lot of day, a lot of the day writing. And my third novel, I have friends in Pittsburgh and I went to visit them and spent a month with them, but they were working during the day. So at night time, we'd, we'd have a ball. We'd be going off and weekends we'd be going off for a period. But during the day, I thought, well, I've seen most of Pittsburgh, so I'm just going to concentrate on finishing my third novel. And I got into a routine during those. And I would work most of the day. I think I would write probably anywhere between 1,000 and 8,000 words a day. Wow. Uh, depending on how I was going and how much research I needed to do. And I came away after that month having completed I'd already kind of half written it but I completed the novel and I felt that was a really good achievement because I I disciplined myself to write it but the other thing about a novel too is once you really get into it it's not hard work it's such a joy to write write a story where you know it's going to go so I'd had some plans about the chapters and what each chapter was going to do and by the end of it I was really satisfied satisfied because I'd reached the end I'd reached the journey and it was, it was a, such a great journey. These novels, were these the ones for parents about the bullying for the kids no, or are these different ones? This is the middle grade. So my first oh, middle right. grade novel, Maximus, was only 25,000 words, which is on the lower end. And I didn't know if I had 25,000 words in me. But when I, when I thought of the second novel, I thought, wow, can I find another 25,000 words? But I ended up writing 45,000 words, <laughs> which I was really pleased with that. And I thought, I've got enough words in me to do that. And I didn't even realise that I had a third novel waiting inside me as well. So I wrote that, and that was another 45,000 words. So, but as I said, you know, once you get into the story and you're really into the characters and really into the depths of the whole plot, you just find yourself getting immersed and, and you want to write, write it, finish it. It's good. Yeah. So are these the these are like a Maximus trilogy, or are they going to be standalone, separate, middle-grade books? Now that I love that question because when I first wrote Maximus, I never set out to write a middle grade novel in the first place. But when I did the diploma, online diploma, I had to write the first chapter of a middle grade novel and I just wanted to write picture books. 
so I, I set about writing this chapter and I wrote a thousand words and then I realized I was only meant to write 500. So I sent it off for assessment and I said chapter 1A and chapter 1B and I received the assessment back. And then because I'd written those two chapters, I thought I, I need to finish this story. So that's what I set out to do. And once I'd finished it, I, I surprised myself that I could actually write a full-length novel. The second novel, the idea was the same characters as the first story. So when I approached one of the big publishers, they said to me, we like your novel, but because you're not well enough known, it would be a quiet book as a standalone. If you come up with a series, we might be interested in it. So I wrote the second novel, but by the time I'd finished the second novel, uh, I'd already had a publishing offer on the first one. And then I had a dilemma. Do I accept the publishing offer uh, or do I finish totally finished the second one and go back to the original publisher, which I did. I went back to the original publisher and they said they should take, they said to me, take the one that you're being offered. And so I did that. Uh, but then I had a sequel. And then that publisher who published my first one didn't want to publish my second one. So then I was stuck with a problem because I, I had a sequel to the first one and no other publishers wanted to touch a sequel when the first one was published by a different publisher. So I had to rewrite it as a standalone, which wasn't that hard. I, I just had to do a little bit more introduction in places. And uh, and that's the book that's coming out this year. It's called 1,000 Snapshots. And when the editor edited it, she said, I had no idea there was another book in it. It's standalone really, really well. But it's also it's also part of the series because people who read the first book would know the characters already. And so it's true to those characters. And then the third book is the same again. It's standalone but it's the same characters. So it's not a trilogy. Three books with the same characters in the same setting in the same year. So yeah. if you call it a series, I'd call it the Bayside Blue series. Yeah, <laughs> I like that. No, I like that they're all standalone with the, the same characters. I think that's great. Um, so do you have uh, tips for aspiring children's authors? What are your tips yeah. <laughs> when it comes for tips. writing for children? One, no children. As in K-N-O-W. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You've got to know your audience. And I was fortunate enough to spend most of my life working with kids. So I got a real idea of what kids like and what kids are thinking. And I've read lots of stories to kids over time in, uh, in programs and stuff that I've done with kids. And so I know when kids are switched on and when they're not switched on. And I know what kind of stories that they yawn to and some stories that they cheer to. And so that gave me a bit of an idea. But some of the hints for kids, probably uh, for writing for kids, uh, get yourself a good critique group because you need you need colleagues, you need a team to cheer you on. And a critique group, while they will critique your work, they'll also be your your close knit group of supporters because they'll be the ones who will always turn up to your your book launches. They'll be the ones who will cheer you on when when you finally publish something. Do you re recommend the critique group, sorry, critique group to be a group of other writers who write in the same genre rather than being sort of with other people who write different in different genres? Do you think it matters? I think so. Most most people who write children's books uh, write in a variety of genres as well that I've discovered. So someone who writes picture books doesn't just write picture books. They will write middle grade and they'll write chapter books as well. So they've got a bit of variety. I think if you've got someone who writes for adults only who's trying to critique children's books and they don't know much about the children's book industry, there's a few issues with that. So they're critiquing 
has some value in it, but sometimes they miss the mark because they don't know children's writing or children's stories very well. Uh, an example of that is that I had someone someone uh, critique something recently and I put an illustrator note in the children's book and their comment was, oh, you should rewrite that bit because you shouldn't really have anything in brackets in a story. <laughs> and so I, I put it back back to the person saying that's an actual illustrator note and his comment back was, Oh, right. I didn't know that. I didn't realize these things. And so that's, that just one of those kind of things. Uh, but get, but get a good critique group and get a variety of people from people who are just starting out and hopefully have people in there who've got some experience. Because if you're all in a critique group and you're all just starting out, you don't have that depth. You've got to find someone who's prepared to come and journey with you. And that may not be easy to do because that means some people have to take a step to step in that direction to help and support. And I, I'm certainly open to do that because I know the help and support that I've got along the way. So I want to do that to any critique group that I'm part of. Another tip is when you're doing, especially writing longer stories and novels, is to get an editor before you publish or before you send it to publishers. An editor who could help look at the structural editing as well as the grammar uh, is really helpful too. What other tips? I did write some things. Uh, <laughs> learn the craft. Learn the craft. Do some courses, whatever courses you can have. Join Squibby. Have a critique group. Get known because what I've discovered in the children's book industry, it's not your books that are going to become famous. It's you that's going to become famous. So you've got to learn how to market yourself, not just your books. And that's a scary one. And someone put it to me once and they said, can you name one of Stephen King's books? And I went, no, but I know who Stephen King is. So, and their point was Stephen King markets himself very well. You'll notice the big time authors, their books, their titles of the story are tiny compared to the name of the person on the book. And so really you've, you've got to be the product. You've got to be able to market yourself. And I find I found that really difficult at the beginning because I, I don't know whether I had a sense of humility or, or whatever or where I was just ignorant or anything, but I, I thought, how do I sell myself? You know, I've, I've got to like myself. I've got to be convinced that I'm good enough to be able to market myself. Otherwise, I'll be telling people lies. And so I had to become better at it and uh and then be confident enough to say yeah i can do this and then market myself so then you've got to you know then you've got to write your own bio because no one else will write your bio for you and um you know it's a bit it's all a bit cheesy in a way but you got to do it and then get yourself a good mugshot as well <laughs> that's a it. Mugshot. and that's one of the final tip be patient because it takes a damn long time to get there it you know it just doesn't happen overnight uh, I get a bit cross when I see people where it does happen overnight, and I think, oh, you lucky bird. <laughs> and it's like buying a lotto ticket. You know, you go out there, and some people can be same numbers for 50 years, and other people can go out and buy their first lotto ticket and win. You kind of think, well, hang on, that's not fair. But that's just the way it is. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic tips. Thank you so much. That's great. Good, really good points there. So I, you know, I see you on social media and you put yourself out there. How, how is it you hear about opportunities, um, for, that are open to writers and authors to promote themselves and their work? Like I know in the past you've, you put yourself forward for judging, judging panels and, and various things. And is it all just a social media place that you can? Yeah. Your social media is a, a necessary evil. 
got to scroll through a whole lot of crap to get to the good stuff. I wish there was some kind of filter that just said, just give me the good stuff. I sign up to things that I think are going to give me good information. So there are a lot of groups you can sign up to on Facebook that you can find out info. But being a member of Squibby, being a member of Writing WA, being a member of the Children's Book Council of Australia, they're three agencies or three organisations that feed out to their members a lot of really valuable information. And I think it's essential that you join those three. And can I add a fourth one, which is the Australian Society of Authors as well, because all of those should be enough because they do enough work, really good work, in sending out to authors information. If I can add a few other little private ones, I would add Buzzwords magazines. Buzzwords is probably the most comprehensive that comes out every fortnight that just gives you a heads up on what's happening in the writing industry. And uh, often you find out about competitions and submissions, etc. through that. Um, but just keep your eyes open. And the other thing is having colleagues who are always uh, forwarding stuff as well. So following others on social media means that you get their feed and there are people out there who are feeding stuff all the time when they get the information and you find out uh, that information. So I think that's the, probably the best way to answer that. No, be seen. Right. Yes. Be seen, be seen. <laughs> no, there, there are some fabulous organisations and especially being an author and in Australia, those are the, the ones you should be definitely uh, a member of or, or keeping your eye on. So you uh, conduct yourself at author talks and uh, school visits and in libraries and at festivals and you are very outgoing with your various hats and... <laughs> in your performances um can you share with our authors uh any tips on giving an engaging performance especially to young kids as well uh, i think probably three main things when you're with kids you need to chill out uh, because they are probably as nervous as you might be so just chill with them and uh, just enjoy their company the second one is to relate to them and uh so stuff that they that they're interested that they get so don't try and peddle your own information. Find where they're at and relate, you know, as simple as uh, getting down to their eye level so that you're looking at them eye to eye is really important. It's getting a bit hard for me now because I've got a bad back <laughs> bending over, but I'll do it. The sacrifices you have to make. And uh, the third thing is fun. Just inject some fun into it. And I, and I see that with all my colleagues and whenever they put on something, the ones that make the kids the ones that make them laugh out loud have got them. You know, you've got the kids. You make them laugh out loud. But if you make them laugh out loud only, that may not be enough because you may be just patronising them. You may be taking advantage of their laughter. So I think it's really important that you help them have that ah oh moment. You know, that oh where where their emotional roller coaster gets taken on a good ride so they're not just all laughing the whole time and change it up improvise uh, make things happen uh, allow kids to write some of the agenda as well so if kids do something in it go with it because kids can really entertain incredibly well and let them take over the show if you want it to be uh, if you want it to be successful in that way one of the things that grinds me, though, is when I see people patronising children. I just get a bit upset when I see kids being taken advantage of in those kind of shows and programs where 
you know, where the, the kids get, it's hard to explain, but when the presenter uses a child in a way for their own advantage rather than for the benefit of the child. You know, a simple example like that, if a child comes up the front of the stage and, you know, the kid, you ask the kid, what's their name? And the kid goes, oh, Dennis. And you go, oh, Dennis the Menace. You know, straight away, you may have lost that child, but you may have lost a whole lot of other kids in the process of that because I think that might be just a bit disrespectful to that child. So I, I try never to put down a kid or say something condescending to a child in an audience or in front of an audience as well. So be respectful. respectful yeah, respectful to the kids. Yep. And kids will see that. They'll notice that. They, they pick up if you're respectful or not. I think that's it. I don't know be, if that's be, be colourful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's wonderful. Um, can can you tell us a bit about the buzz build-up zone? Is uh, what it, what is this, and uh, how how does it tie in your overall body of work? Yeah, I saw that question on your list of questions. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that's another whole interview. Yeah, um, I, I saw it on your website, and I was like, "What is that? It sounds great." One of the things that I did was to listen to what children were saying, and I. I really wanted to respect what their journey was. And one of the things that kids were talking about was their own sense of grief in their life. So they were struggling with emotions generally. And most of the time children would come and talk to me. It's because something was going wrong in their relationships with their friends. But that was only, that was only the after effects of something else going wrong at home. So generally what would happen is that something would happen in their home life that was a grief issue. And when I say grief issue, I don't just mean someone dying. I mean anything from uh, a friend moving away to dad having to work away to mum getting a new job to a new baby in the house to anything that's a sense of change or loss in their life is a grief issue for a child. And if they're not supported through that grief issue, it'll affect their social confidence and that will affect in turn their friendships. And so children whose social confidence gets a kick in the guts will be vulnerable to bullying or they actually may turn into the instigators of bullying because they're trying to regain a sense of power in their lives. So you know, I, I get a bit annoyed when I see kids' books about bullying that pastors a bully as a bad person that picks on you because the reality is a bully is not a bad person. A bully is a person who's going through a bad time and uh, I want that to come out in, in what I'm writing. With the buzz stuff that I did, I remember working at a school and they had a sign in their undercover area. It was like the old Ghostbusters sign, you know, the red circle with the cross <laughs> yeah. through it. And it just said, no bullying. And I thought, oh, yeah, that's cool. I don't want to see bullying in the school. But a parent came to the principal and said, is there a bullying problem in the school? And the principal said, no, not really. What makes you think that? And the, the parents said, well, that sign that you've got, that says no bullying, tells me that you've got a bullying problem and you're trying to stop it. And she she would hit the nail on the head. The principal uh, and I had a conversation about that and we realised that she said the sign was a negative sign. The sign was sending the wrong message. The sign was saying we've got a problem and we're doing something to fix it. And what was also interesting, at the time the school had a what they called a bully survey. So they were serving, surveying the incidences of bullying to try and stop bullying. And what ended up happening is that every year it never got any better. They had the same level of bullying. Sometimes it got worse. No matter what programs or whatever they tried, things just didn't work. And then it occurred to both the principal and myself that maybe we had the wrong end of the stick. If you approach from the punitive end of the stick, if you approach from trying to prevent or stop something happening 
on by being negative about it, you're not going to get there. We came up with this idea of, of train, changing things to become positive, and I suggested that instead of a instead of a bully free zone, what's that turned on its head? And it's a build up zone. So the whole idea of build up zone then became the acronym BUZ, which was Buzz. Then that became the B as our mascot. And the whole concept of creating an environment that was conducive to children having good social and emotional skills, a friendly environment, and an environment that had the five, what I call the five nutrients of social and emotional well-being. So that was born out of that experience. And we then turned the bullying survey, we threw that out the window and had a friendship survey. So we were interviewing children or getting children to fill in uh, questionnaires about friendship skills, about positive skills. So instead of asking how many times has someone hit you this week, we would ask how many times has someone said thank you to you this week or how many times has someone invited you to play. And what was happening is that the language was changing. The language of the kids was changing. Instead of walking away from a, uh, a conflict, they were actually staying there to help resolve the conflict. Instead of calling someone a bully, they were actually seeing somebody as somebody who needed support or help through a tough time. And that's where the whole idea of buzz or build-up zone came from, is creating an environment that helped children to be able to grow socially and emotionally. And so that it just it just grew from there, and then a whole organisation grew out of that, and we called the organisation NurtureWorks, which I became the founding director of the organisation, and the, it grew so much so that we, at one stage, we had nine people on the staff. Youth Care, which is the agency that puts chaplains into schools throughout the whole of Western Australia, took our programs on board, and we became the trainers of chaplains to run those programs in schools as social and emotional well-being programs because they were in a good position to do that, and that was taken up really well. So from that real humble little beginning of that parent seeing that sign, <laughs> plus my own experience of listening to children, we created this this whole organisation. I was humbled and also quite excited when I received an Australia uh, of the year, no, what, what did I receive? Kind of Order of Australia Medal, can't remember what it was now. Wow. Because I got nominated for so many different things. And that just blew me away that, that, that it had reached that kind of level and it was accepted at that level. And, uh, all of that experience I now want to put into my writing. So as I said, got another half an hour. Oh, yeah, that is amazing. I absolutely love that. And I I can really connect with that story as having young children and kind of being in those experiences now that our school's kind of adopting, like we have buddy benches and they're bringing the older kids in to be buddies for the younger kids. And and they're doing lots of little friendship courses here and there. And it's, I mean, school's completely different place since I was at school, but it's, yeah, it's just amazing. Yeah, over the time, it it was over 20 years ago, when Buzz first started and when it first started schools were fairly negative and punitive in their approach to social emotional well-being I remember at the time their discipline stuff was called BMAD which was behavior and behavior and discipline B-M-A-D behavior management and discipline and uh, so their whole way of approaching social skills was to punish bad behavior and uh, to to stop kids from being mean to other kids by punishing the behaviour. And the reality was that some of those kids still hadn't learned the skills. So imagine punishing your own child because they're not holding a fork properly. Uh, Or imagine punishing a child because they hadn't learned a skill yet. 
you don't punish someone who hasn't learnt those skills. You teach them the skills. And those skills are so important. You teach them in a positive environment. And therefore, punishment is not effective or is not even appropriate at all anymore. And I've seen a shift over that time. And a lot of that shift is to do with uh, the positive skills movement and uh, the work of Helen Street and um, her book on contextual well-being in schools. And also, and there's a whole plethora of others as well, but she, uh, her and Neil, her partner's work and the work that they've been doing throughout Australia in the schools movement has been absolutely incredible. And the whole social and emotional learning uh, community throughout the world has also helped out with that. I still think we've got a long way to go from what I've seen over the years, but I've seen some really positive changes in that and I'd love to see more. Yeah, um, no, it's so... Now's my time to write the kids' books. <laughs> Well, that's it. Such important topics that you're touching on there. And I'm really glad that you're, you know, formatting them into your books and, and spreading the word that way. So can you tell us where we people can find you and your work in store and online? Well, uh, <laughs> just Google Steve Heron and uh, my mugshot will come up. I know that when I Google, it's on the top of my list on my Google page, but that's probably because I do it too often. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I've got a website, which is just steveheron.com, and everything's on there, and all the links to my social media is on there, and um, you can you can find all that kind of stuff. Uh, most of my books are available in bookshops if you place an order, if they're not on the shelves. Uh, Lingley's Lantern should be on the shelves in most bookshops, and my latest book, Where You're Going, is on the way to the shelves at the moment, but you can order it through my website or you can order it through Wild Eyed Press website as well. Uh, where else can you find me? Hopefully find me in libraries and schools doing lots of workshops and presentations, etc. because I've got some good ones lined up. That information is also on my website. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for your time and your expertise and advice, Steve. That's just been absolutely incredible. Could I just say one more thing? Of course. Uh, I haven't mentioned his name, but my latest picture book, which is called Where You're Going, uh, the illustrator, Maddie Mitchell yes. from here in WA. <laughs> and... Uh, and I would be, it would be amiss if I did not mention how impressed I was with his illustrations for that book. He's taken Australian creatures to a whole new level with his illustrations. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing him get some accolade for that. Yeah, for yeah. The, the illustrations in the book as a whole is absolutely beautiful. So well done to you both. And I uh, can't wait to get my copy. Yeah. And if your school or library hasn't had me yet, then um, you miss me out. <laughs> that's it getting folks big weeks on the horizon <laughs> i can't wait to shoot my marshmallow cannon in those places oh yeah that sounds good yeah wonderful well thanks again steve much appreciated thanks joe that's the end for now authors i hope you're further forward in your author adventure after listening and i hope you'll listen next time remember to head on over to the hybrid author website at www hybridauthor.com.au to get your free author pass. It's bye for now.